Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome back to How Should I Be Positioned on the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. On this podcast, we do like to compare and discuss the macro and asset allocation views of the UBS Chief Investment Office, as well as those of our third-party asset manager partners, to kick off the podcast series for 2024. I'm glad to welcome back, as always, from the UBS Chief Investment Office, the head of asset allocation for the Americas, Jason Dreho. We're also excited to have back with us a Richard Bernstein of Richard Bernstein Advisors, RBA. Uh, Rich is the firm's founder, chief executive officer, and chief investment officer. So with that, Rich, Jason, it's great to be with you both as we embark on a new year. Thank you for spending some time with our listeners, our clients, and for sharing with them your views on the markets and recommendations when it comes to positioning. So welcome back. Yeah, great to be with you. Great to be here. Thanks, Rich, for joining us. Uh, The first uh, one of the year. Yeah. So there's a lot to catch up on. Perhaps we can begin big picture talking about the U.S. economy. Rich, here we are in January. What are your expectations for how the U.S. economy might evolve for at least the first half? Dan, I think um, the the opportunity that I think we see in, in 2024 and certainly in the first half is that the economy might turn out to be uh, uh, stronger than people think, uh, stronger than economists think. And I think we could see uh, positive surprises. Um, you know, there have been um, outside of the outside of the pandemic, we are seeing a record string of positive earning surprises relative to economic forecasts. The economy has turned out to be a boatload stronger than than people thought for the third quarter, and so far it looks like the fourth quarter is turning out to be that way. And actually, beginning of 2024 is turning out to be that way as well. So uh, we think the the opportunity is in being a little more optimistic about the economy than than uh, the consensus is right now. So with that, Jason, from the lens of the chief investment office, how do you see economic conditions evolving in the months ahead? Well, I think we generally share you know, Rich's view that the economy is not only showing much signs of, of slowing down and uh, uh, in fact, could we accelerate? I mean, one thing is that, you know, you, even today I'm sort of discussing with some colleagues is that if you look at financial conditions, they eased a lot in the fourth quarter. The data would share that typically leads to a positive growth impulse about two quarters out, meaning like the second quarter of this year. Uh, so what is part of our you know, kind of review of our year ahead outlook and sort of revisions to our scenarios uh, earlier this month, you know, our view on the you know, base case is that you know, now we see it's a soft landing. If you think about the, the kind of the growth levels we're talking about, it's kind of close to or maybe a little bit below trend, so a little bit less than 2%. Whereas before we would have said, you know, maybe between you know zero and one percent, I think consensus, you know, which can be sort of lagging in terms of how much and how soon economists update their forecast, is lower than that. But uh, you know, I think we'd be the, the, the camp that, frankly, the risk is probably the economy more in the near term in the first half of this year, you know, accelerates or stays at trend or even slightly above trend, as opposed to kind of you know dipping and going closer towards recession kind of levels of, of negative growth. So I think, and that in, in terms of um, kind of agreeing with which I think that's. You know, to me, the concern isn't about growth this year. I think that's going to hold up reasonably well. It's just a question, does inflation keep falling or, you know, the possibility of inflation 
uh, you know, if the growth holds up, does inflation not come down as quickly as the Fed would like to see, but also the markets would like to see given what they're already kind of pricing for, for Fed cuts this year. Now, with respect to monetary policy, which thinking back to 2023, Rich, was a, a primary market driver, how do you see the course for monetary policy progressing as we make our way through the first half? Any thoughts on timing around potential rate cuts? Yeah, you know, Dan, I think um, we started the year with the Fed being um, openly optimistic about the future of inflation, um, which is which I, I find kind of interesting because the Fed is usually never so certain about anything. They're usually hedging like like crazy. But so far this year, um, they've been pretty much uh, jawboning in terms of of lower inflation and the potential to cut interest rates as as the you know as the year proceeds and um, I I think that's I think they're being a little over optimistic uh, on this point I mean uh, you know as we pointed out the economy is not exactly dying uh, it could turn out to be in better shape than people think including the Fed um, if corporate profits are going, uh, we think they could go up to 10 to 15 percent at some point in 2023. We could argue about which quarter it peaks out at, but we think we're going to see a, a 10 to 15 percent earnings growth rate during the year. Um, keeping in mind the beginning of 2023, earnings growth was minus 10 to 15 percent. So we're going from minus 10 to 15 percent to plus 10 to 15 percent. It's hard to imagine the labor markets uh, getting easier as corporate profits rev up, I, I would just point out to people that that the mild easing that we saw in the labor markets, which really wasn't a lot of easing, but it was some easing and gave people some hope for lower wage rates and lower inflation, um, that that occurred during a profits recession, uh, which is normal, right? Companies lay off when when you see earnings down 10 to 15 percent. We didn't even see a lot of layoffs. But but that was the pressure that you saw in the labor markets, which was pretty mild, to say the least. Well, if, if earnings growth is up 10 to 15 percent, it's hard to say the labor markets are going to keep easing. Companies tend to hire when uh, profits are up 10 to 15 percent. So we could see the labor markets get tighter. We could see the, the, the economy be a little bit stronger. And I think the grand irony is that the Fed chair entered the year talking about how supply chain disruptions uh, have essentially been cured at a point in time where in the Middle East they're lobbing missiles at container ships. So, I mean, I don't really know the implications of those missiles being lobbed at uh, container ships, but I find it rather interesting that everybody has decided that supply chain disruptions are a thing of the past when there's some potential for supply chain disruptions to actually uh, grow a little bit here. So, so I think um, monetary policy, I think, I think the Fed itself is a little too um, – uh, a little too optimistic uh, in terms of their ability to ease and um, how it's everything's going to be perfect. I, I'm not sure that's going to happen. Well, actually, I wanted to follow up. Uh, one, you know, you know, Rich, in terms of like, you know, people firing missiles at ships in the, the Red Sea. I mean, these are just minor details. I mean, well, the market's not going to worry about stuff like that uh, in terms of the inflation narrative. But I also I don't know, maybe push back a little bit on the Fed being a little too sanguine. I mean, like this is always kind of interpreting the language of Fed officials, but it seems like you know, certainly since the December meeting when the markets turned even more dovish and, and now we're at pricing six, almost six and a half cuts this year, that it would be the markets to, that are a little too sanguine on this, whereas the Fed you know, has sort of pushed back various Fed officials saying like there's, there could still be more work to be done. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
you know, it, it's they could push back more forcefully and clearly the market is ignoring them given like you know, since January 2nd, you know, there's a little bit more in terms of the number of cuts this year, like from around six to six and a half. Uh, so is it, is it, I guess, look, there's what the Fed does, but there's also what market pricing is. And the market pricing is definitely right now for kind of the benign outcome of like, you know, growth holds up and, and the Fed cuts six plus times. Yet do you think, is that possible to kind of square that circle? Like, can yeah. inflation fall enough? So where do you think is, I mean, you mentioned you, do, you think the Fed's a little too sanguine, but don't you think that maybe the markets that are even really kind of you know, too sanguine? Yeah. Uh, and that, that's the risk to the equity markets more that the rates aren't going to play out the way they expect? Yeah. Jason, I think that's, that's an excellent clarification. Um, you know, I tend to speak somewhat in hyperbole to make a point, but, but you're absolutely right. I mean, the markets are um, way ahead of the Fed. And you can see that. You mentioned earlier on, Jason, about financial conditions of ease. You could look at, at you know, uh, a lot of the accepted sort of financial condition indices that are out there. There's certainly enough of them out there. And they're all showing uh, a lot of easing. And a lot of that's market-related, not necessarily Fed-related. So I think your point is, is very important. The divining rod that I like to use just in terms of how much speculative fervor is still out there and how have financial conditions you know, market-related financial conditions eased and spurred that speculative fervor, uh, my divining rod is Bitcoin. Um, the, if you look at the at Bitcoin's price, I know everybody is sure this has to do with the future and, and major changes in the financial system and all that. I, I get all the excitement. I understand that. But if you look at Bitcoin's actual price, it, it actually moves with financial conditions. So when there's when expectations of added liquidity, and liquidity is kind of the lifeblood of speculation, when there is financial conditions ease and the idea is there going to be more liquidity, you will find Bitcoin goes up. When financial conditions tighten, you will find Bitcoin goes down. So I use, I use Bitcoin as my, um, as my divining rod in terms of, you know, is the market, uh, how is the market interpreting what the Fed is doing? That's kind of the best way to think about it. But you're absolutely right in terms of the difference between the Fed and Fed speak and how the markets are interpreting it. That's, that's a very important point. Well, then kind of going back to your comments of like earnings growth of 10 to 15 percent, you know, if it is that's the case, I would agree like this would mean that the economy must be doing reasonably well. The labor market remains you know, tight. For, in that situation, maybe inflation doesn't come down enough on its own, like the immaculate disinflation story that the Fed doesn't have to cut as much. But then does that sort of bring into sort of circularity that if they don't cut as much as the market's pricing, which like, they cut, say, three times, not six and a half, then financial conditions actually tighten, so they're going to grow slows later, and therefore we don't get to 10 to 15% earnings growth. Like, there's like kind of a reflexivity to it. So how do you, I guess you have to kind of break the loop, and you either believe like, you know, growth will be good no matter what, and it doesn't matter so much on what the Fed does. Uh, inflation will come down steadily, and the Fed will cut. So how do you guess, how do you, right. it sounds like you're, you're relatively optimistic and optimistic on earnings. So how do you make sure to like, right. tie the story together? So I think I think it is the strength in earnings and the strength in the economy, the strength in the labor market that forces the Fed to not be as generous, if you will, as as the markets think. So I think it's the economy leading the Fed, not necessarily the Fed leading the economy. And that's that's always been my bias. I mean, when I taught in the grad school at NYU, one of the things we used to talk about was leading coincident and lagging indicators. And, and historically, the Fed has actually been somewhat of a lagging indicator. They're really never ahead of the game. They're usually somewhat behind. And so I, I would look to the economy to be stronger, that forcing the Fed to change their tune, um, rather than the Fed 
dictating the economy, what's going to go on. Now, um, I, I would argue that's that's more normal than than people think, but but obviously not everybody would agree with that. Well, if the Fed does have to change its tune because the economy is leading the way, just then for first for equities and then for fixed income, you know, we know a lot of good news is priced in the equity markets after that strong run to end of last year. Uh, how does is it already kind of fully priced in in your estimation? Um, you know, for, for the earnings growth out that you know, outlook that you're you're talking about. And it does seem like the start of the year, it's only two weeks, so, you know, don't want to make too much of it. But, you know, it's a little defenses, I think, have led the way. The, the Mag 7X Tesla have kind of led the way. So a little bit of, feels like it's paused. Maybe it's the pause to refresh. But how do you, I guess, what's your view on what equities are pricing? And given the, the growth outlook you're talking about, what the consequences for the Fed later on, right. how do you see the equity markets kind of playing out this year, both in the path, but also the final destination? Right. So, so. This is this is a weird one, Jason, and and I'm probably going to confuse people, and I apologize ahead of time uh, for doing so. But but I think I don't really think there is the market right now. I, I we've suggested that people look at the equity markets overall as a seesaw, and on one side of the seesaw you effectively have seven stocks. You know you could expand that a little bit, seven plus stocks on one side of the seesaw, and on the other side of the seesaw you have virtually everything else in the global equity markets, whether it's in the U.S., whether it's outside the U.S., everywhere. And, and the fulcrum of the seesaw is what people like to call the market. And, and I think the outlook for the Magnificent Seven in the environment that I just outlined, I think the, the, the environment is actually quite bad for their stocks, not for necessarily for their businesses, but for their stocks. I think that's an important distinction I'm trying to make here. Um, I, I think the performance of those stocks is not going to be nearly as good as, as people think. Meanwhile, in the economic environment that I just outlined, I think the other side of the seesaw actually might do very, very well. And so when people say, are you bullish or bearish, I have a very tough time answering that question because I don't think the market is going to be doing an awful lot as the fulcrum of the seesaw. I think the excitement is going to be which side of the seesaw are you on, I would obviously advocate that you be on the not, I don't know how to say this, the not mag seven side of the seesaw. In other words, the, the broader market side of the seesaw. Um, we would actually argue that side of the seesaw in terms of uh, broader U.S. market, broader global markets is uh, historically broad, historically attractive. And I would argue personally a once in a generation type opportunity, uh, not unlike what you saw after the deflation of the tech bubble. Um, so I, I'm not sure I'm answering your question uh, the way people like to hear it. You're supposed to be either bullish or bearish. Um, and uh, I, I'm trying to use the seesaw analogy to say, you know, I'm probably really bearish on one side of the seesaw and really bullish, like once in a generation bullish on the other side. I guess they're kind of a, sort of the analogy is, you know, you can stick your head in the microwave and your foot in an ice bath and your average temperature is okay, <laughs> but it's clearly some differences. And I guess exactly. like it's, it's the same with, like, yes, you could be, if you have actually in a price target, like ours is 5000 for your end. So, you know, mid-single digit type of upside. But I agree with you that, you know, I think we could see, and we like small caps, you know, significantly outperforming by year end by, you know, 10, 15 percentage points, if not more, right? I mean, like, you know, you never want to get too bold, but I think it's not going to be the everything moves along. I think you're going to see some you know, pretty big dispersion across your sectors. And, and we've seen that for the past two years, like massive kind of relative outperformance. Um, I think that will continue to kind of be the theme as, as the market sort of rotates and tries to figure out is the macro economy 
as you say, and I kind of I'm in the camp of, you know, being sufficiently good that even if the Fed doesn't cut as much, it's still good news is good news, and you get that rotation uh, versus you know if, if, if there's uncertainty about the market. Then in that case, it does feel like you know people then will cling to owning those magnificent seven stocks because you know they economically they will form and you know if you're a fund manager you probably don't get fired for owning Microsoft but you might get fired for deciding to buy you know you know um, APAC equities you know yep, so I think, exactly. I think so I mean just just the reality of the situation uh, so we've we've covered equities just on the fixed income side you know there's dispersion across the markets it feels like there might be even more dispersion on the views where rates go from the Fed I mean I think I think you know, three to six is you know 80% of the, the forecast in Bloomberg in that range, but there's some who are like two, and there's some who are you know 10. What's even more surprising, I think, is the 10-year that the average Bloomberg consensus forecast is around 3.8%, and currently you know a little over 3.9, so close to unchanged. But the range is like four and a half percent on the high end to three percent of the, the the low end in terms of where it'll end this year. It's interesting to note that last year. The ten-year went from 3.3 to 5%. Like it ranged that much, but it began the year at 3.87% and ended the year at 3.87%. So, so yeah, you know, yeah. if you didn't like begin the destination, it was like flat, but incredible roller coaster. So, given the growth outlook you're describing, where maybe the fit you think of the Fed is, you know, a little aggressive in terms of talking about being able to cut it, it sounds like one you that you're in the camp of maybe fewer rather than more cuts, and therefore maybe the ten-year, you know, stays where it is, it even can drift higher. The curve. I don't know if it's kind of steepening, but how do you think on the fixed income side, it's sort of, you know, again, the path and destination of how it plays out this year? Right. So, so Jason, you mentioned this briefly, and um, but I think it's a very important point, is that we've seen tremendous volatility uh, in the fixed income markets, right? I mean, people are probably relatively aware of the VIX, which, which is a standard measure of volatility in the equity market. Um, there's the move index, which is the volatility of the fixed income market and whereas the VIX and equity volatility has gone down largely because of the effect of the MAG-7 and their run and how they're dominating the indices, you've seen the move index stay extraordinarily high for the past two years. Um, you know, and everybody's seen this, you know, how do you go from 5% to 375 back to four? I mean, it's like, it's, it's all over the place on, on, uh, uh, on interest rates. And, and I think that um, my guess is that we will continue to see that. To some extent, and I think, you know, just simply playing a, a duration game uh, may be very difficult because of this volatility. You know, you might be right one day and wrong the next day, and right the next day. And, I mean, you know, you pull your hair out, which for me, obviously, well, for those of you who know me, I have no hair. But, but, um, uh, you know, I, I'm not sure that's going to be a fruitful investment strategy. Um, what we're trying to do is um, basically stay benchmark duration and um, play a barbell, we are taking a little bit of credit risk at the front end of the curve, you know, short term, because we do think the profits are going to hit up. We do think that, you know, corporate cash flows will get stronger over the next six to 12 months. So we are willing to play um, uh, lower quality credit at the front end of the curve. The back end of the curve, we're, we're pretty much all, all quality. But overall, um, our, our portfolio is really kind of benchmark um, benchmark type duration because I, I don't think right now um, I don't think too many people are are nimble or smart enough to try and play what's going on in the duration end of the of the spectrum here with volatility you know really the highest we've seen in in ten plus years. I, I want to pick up on that point and, and, and then the process kind of 
self-promoted little blog that I published um, very recently titled Things That Make You Go Hmm. And the idea was to kind of step back from some of the day-to-day of what's going on to think big picture. You mentioned earlier, a lot of people got the economic forecast wrong last year. So, you know, you should kind of step back and reflect, like, why did I get it wrong? Is it my models? Am I not understanding the economy? And so the blog asks kind of a series of questions that don't necessarily have easy answers. Like one is, suppose the pandemic never happened. Would there have been a recession at all, or would be year, would we be in year 15 of an economic expansion? Which, in some ways, I know asking like, does the U.S. economy, absent a shock, go into recession, or is just the expansion continue indefinitely? Uh, you know, it's a great kind of what-if kind of question. But one of the other questions I, I kind of ask is, you know, the volatility that we saw last year that you alluded to in the, the 10-year and rates, these huge swings, was that just a consequence of unique post-pandemic normalization of the economy? Or is this kind of a structural feature of financial markets? And my conjecture is that this is sort of now a structural feature of financial markets because investors are very beholden to what the Fed is going to do, you know, uh, whether it's you know, easing extraordinary policy, hiking, focus on financial conditions that we talked about, that there is less conviction on the macro dynamics, like what's actually playing out and why. And when that's the case, people tend to shift their views based on a few data points. Like last year, it took all of a few data points sometimes to go from soft landing to hard landing back to soft landing. And then investors just have instruments, index securities or index linked securities, there's systematic strategies, all of which kind of takes this and exacerbates momentum in the markets. Uh, and so you get situations like we did last year where huge movement rates up and down, but ultimately you're kind of flat. I bring this back then to as an investor, uh, you know, those are not easy markets to navigate. Uh, and it feels to me like this has gotten worse over time, or at least more challenging. You know, just curious and kind of high level what I've kind of laid out. Would you say this kind of momentum, these kind of markets where it's harder to have conviction on, is that just sort of, is this gotten worse over time versus where it would have been 10, 15, 20 years ago or more? Or do you think that just this has always been the case and uh, people just are, are more conscious of, or they have different ways to express it? So, so I'm going to answer uh, and say yes to both. I think it has always been in the markets, but I think it is dramatically worse. So how's that for an answer, Jason? I think um, the C science, right? Got it. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So, so twenty uh, odd years ago, I wrote a book that was called "Navigate the Noise: Investing in the New Age of Media and Hype." And what it what it argued was basically that building wealth is not difficult, but why, so why don't people do it? And and the answer was back then. This was like two thousand two thousand two when I wrote the book. The answer was is that there's always a siren song, something luring you that's new, it's different, it's sexy, it's a great, you know, it's got to be something you have to hold, all these kind of things. And instead of just following basic fundamental principles of investing, people go off and do like you know, it's like the cat with this with the with the laser pin, you know, like you what's the shiny object and you're attracted to the shiny object. And so you, you know, what happens is investors end up buying high and selling low. And and that's what hurts performance, and that's why people have trouble building wealth through time. And so that was true 20 years ago. Um, it's infinitely more true today. There are so many issues. You know, now we have the spread of social media. We have the spread of um, um, all kinds of, of uh, information outlets and everything else. It's more true today than it was then. And I think did your comment that we had all this rocking and rolling in the fixed income markets and we basically ended where we started is a fantastic comment because that's basically what what 
the book argued 20 years ago. It's the principles that we follow here at RBA is we, we're not an event-driven firm. Because to be an event-driven firm means you're reacting every 30 seconds to something that's going on. That's ridiculous. The economy doesn't change that dramatically in such a short period of time. And so I, I think what the book argued was that you should kind of put on blinders and follow basic, you know, sound principles of investing and sound fundamental aspects. And that's what we do here at our firm is we're not in a, we're a macro firm, but we are not event-driven. And because it's it's fruitless to try to do that. And I, I think your comment, you know, is perfect that we we started and end of the year. But, wow, is there a lot of excitement in between? <laughs> it is. I, I think, like, it, it's difficult sometimes not to be succumbed to whether it's the next big thing you could be talking about, the dot-com and the, the late 90s, AI now. But even just a more of almost like in the macro, believing, you know, adamantly in a soft landing, hard landing, there's people who think no landing. Yeah, we're all kind of operating to some extent a little bit blind of like what's really going on with the economy. It's true. I think whatever the economy doesn't change that much. What seems to be flipping is that people don't understand what's the true. Let's call it. I kind of think of like statistically the underlying data generating process. Like what is the true behavior of the economy? Yep. We can't we can't determine that in real time. You have noisy data. It's gotten even noisier, but it means then people kind of lurch from sort of one explanation or theory to the other, and that's especially with rates because the rates are even more so than equities are pure distillation of like. What's the economy going to be doing in you know a year, two years, five years, ten years from now? Right. Um, so I, I agree that it, it's if that's the case, best course of action is to make sure you have a long-term strategy, diversified you know portfolio. When these big moves create opportunities, and like last fall, one of them for us was when the tenure was at five percent, lock in these yields, buy quality bonds, which you know I think hopefully for those who, who took advantage of it, it's worked out quite well. Um, which is a bit of a segue then for me. I know you covered on on kind of you know kind of the views on credit, but uh, within the overall fixed income landscape, where you know, and you're doing ratio neutral, where is sort of your messaging? Where do you think is the opportunities are given? How you think the macro story will will play out? Yeah. So um, as I said, we're kind of barbelled um, with our duration of our portfolio being very very close to the to the uh, benchmark duration, uh, the the Bloomberg Barclays Ag duration, which is, I think is about uh, six years and and a little uh, somewhere in that range right now. Um, however, we don't hold very much at that benchmark duration. Uh, duration. We don't. We don't have a lot there. We're we're barbelled. We have uh, cash and I, I shouldn't say cash. Near cash, um, and we are. That's where we're basically taking our our credit risk. And then we have long-term treasuries um, and some mortgages and 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 that sort of thing. So our quality bet is more at the long end of the curve. Our credit bet is more at the short end of the curve. The, the end result is um, we have benchmark duration. Um, you know, I think, you know, we all know that, that spreads, corporate spreads and, and quality spreads are, are pretty narrow. So we've made the decision that it's probably better to try and play that through uh, more cyclical equities than through more cyclical bonds. And you pointed out um, you're favoring small caps, and I'm, I'm sure most people on this call know, historically there's been a pretty good relationship between between high yield spreads and small cap performance and high yield spreads tend to lead a little bit and sure enough high yield spreads are uh, pretty narrow so if they're pretty narrow that would argue that you know you should have a relatively constructive view on small caps and we do as do you going back then to equities this is will be my final question you know you, you have the seesaw analogy you have us large cap growth tech on one end and then a lot pretty much almost everything else got on the other side that could do well 
if you take this other side, which includes a lot of stuff in the U.S., value stocks, small caps, but then you know, you know, ex-U.S., whether it's developed markets, emerging markets, Japan is very popular. Right. Uh, in this other sandbox area, what are the things that you kind of like the most, whether it's in the U.S. or you know, outside of the U.S.? Yeah, so our general theme from a cyclical perspective has been trying to get cyclicality into the portfolio. So in the U.S., you know, we're overweight energy, materials, industrial, small caps. I think most people would consider that the more cyclical side of the stock market. We are overweight all of that. Outside the United States, we are overweight emerging markets. Um, we're even overweight uh, Canada, which really is such a small part of the global economy, but it is fun to say you're overweight Canada because not many people say it. Um, and uh, But we're, we're trying to get cyclicality into the portfolio there as well. So uh, we are overweight Japan. I agree with you. I think Japan has been and seems likely to continue to be uh, a very good opportunity, um, especially if they uh, keep the yen stable to weak as opposed to stable to strong. I think that will be very good uh, for Japan and for Japanese corporate profits. It may hurt, may hurt unhedged investors. I understand that. But I'm just saying from the point of view of the local market returns, it might be uh, it might be pretty advantageous. So we we like a, a lot of a lot of different geographic areas. I think where we've been lightening up a little bit, uh, we're still modestly overweight. Uh, would be Europe, um, uh, and and but the beauty of being so underweight, the Magnificent Seven, and the fact that they dominate the global indices so much allows us to be <laughs> overweight a lot of different places outside of those seven companies, and and so. Uh, we're trying to take advantage of that. Uh, well, just so you're aware, I, I'm actually from Canada. So your comment about um, liking Canada, uh, yeah. I assume that wasn't just your purely to ingratiate yourself with the host no, to, no. to be invited back. That was a genuine statement. But I think it kind of ties in with the thesis of yeah, the cyclical market. Um, and if you kind of believe in kind of the global story, kind of growth story, then, then it is a market that is kind of relatively poised to do well because it actually lagged quite a bit yeah, um, you know, last year in the, in the global recovery. So, so I think we kind of share that general thinking as well. Thank you both for spending some time with our listeners, our clients here on How Should I Be Positioned. I do appreciate you sharing your recommendations and your insights as we're embarking on a new year and do look forward, Rich, to having you back at some point here in 2024 so we can take a check-in and see how conditions evolve in the months ahead. Great. Thanks, Dan. Uh, thanks, Rich, for joining us, and good luck this year, and enjoy the journey as much as the destination. Yeah. Thank you, Jason. It's great being with you. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliates. The views and opinions expressed in this material by external guest speakers are those of the author, speaker, and are not those of UBS, its subsidiaries, or affiliates. Accordingly, UBS does not accept any liability over the content of this material or any claims, losses, or damages arising from the use or reliance of all or any part thereof. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient, and is published for informational purposes only. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.